0: we turn with you in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Last week we spoke of the crisis in the first part of Revelation chapter 5, which you recall was the terrible question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And we saw that John wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. It was indeed a terrible moment. Thankfully, we know that there was one who was found to be worthy to open and read the scroll, and that was Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And now today we come to the response of heaven to that wonderful resolution, to that worship that is given to this Lamb who was slain. And if the right thing for John to do in the absence of a Savior, when there was found no one worthy, was to weep, and it was the right thing, then what is the right thing to do when that lamb has been found, and when he has been preached, and when he has been explained to us, and he is put forward for our view, what is the right thing to do in that instance, well, the right thing to do is to worship this God man who laid down his life for us, this one who is worthy to open the scrolls and to bring forward the plan of redemption and to save God's elect. He is worthy, and therefore we ought to worship. You know that worship and worthiness are intimately related? That's even the case etymologically in English. Worthship, worthship worship, but it's true at a deeper level, even in languages that have, those words have nothing to do with one another, as it is in the Bible. It's what you do for somebody who is worthy. David makes this connection in Second Samuel 22 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. That's why he's going to call upon the Lord, he's worthy to be praised. And likewise in John the Baptist, Mark 1.7, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Because these two things are related. It's always about, worship is about relative worthiness. I'm not saying that Christ is relatively worthy. I mean to say that his worthiness in our horizon increases when we consider just how unworthy we are. If you are a, a peer, you don't necessarily worship someone who is your peer, no matter how high or how low that, that is. But on the other hand, if you are very low, you look up to someone who's very high. And so it requires these, both of these things. The object of your worship is worthy of worship. You have to recognize that. You have to understand just how great this person is. And you have to understand just how low that you are. You're not on that same level, you're low. You're not worthy. And therefore, in those two things, you worship. That is the right human response when you're aware of those two things. Now, worship, of course, is central to our identity as a church. What do we call this? We call this the worship service. And if someone were to ask you this morning, where are you going? What are you doing? And you say, I'm going to church. And they'd say, well, Why don't you just stay at home and celebrate the New Year's Day? And you say, no, I'm going to worship God, you see. And in order to sustain that, in order to be able to keep answering that sort of question, you need to be convinced that the object of your worship is worthy of it. Because if he's not worthy of your worship, then don't bother. Now, that was a great question of the early church. Why are we worshiping Jesus Christ? Because the Aryans keep saying that he's just a creature. And the great answer was, no, he's God. He's God Almighty, and that's why we worship him. He is worthy of our worship. And it works the other way around. If we're not fully, already fully convinced of his worthiness, for worship we will not worship him as we ought, and will not keep on worshiping at all. But he certainly he is worthy of all of our worship. And we know as a fact that right now, this worship is going on in heaven. And it's going on in a worthy manner. Sadly, we know that our worship doesn't always live up to it. We are in some ways like a child that doesn't know exactly what he's doing in worshiping. We're trying, aren't we? The problem is our understanding isn't full. We don't really understand the fullness of the one that we're here to worship we don't really feel. We're going in some ways through the emotion sometimes. We don't, we don't feel the depth of his worthiness and our unworthiness. We come a little bit lifted up in pride and therefore our worship isn't all that much. And our horizons aren't filled as they ought to be with Christ. Well, That is not the case in heaven. They understand the worthiness of Christ and how we wish that we could. How I wish that this sermon could do that. Sadly, The word of God is very powerful. The Holy Spirit is very powerful. The sermon itself isn't all that great either. And so we pray as we go that the Lord might open our eyes and some way or another enable us to see the worthiness of this Savior. So these three points, as we consider worthy is the Lamb, first, the worship itself Second, the occasion for that worship. And third, the rationale for that worship. You see? Worship itself, the occasion for why they're worshipping at that particular moment, and then the rationale, why it is. If you were to ask them, why are we worshipping this Lord? That explanation, rationale. So first point, the worship itself. And we actually have several iterations of the heavenly worship It uh, it sort of goes back and forth, doesn't it? We first have the elders sort of leading and initiating the worship. Then we have the great heavenly host. Then They join in this worship. And then as if when they see that sort of level and completeness of worship given to the Lamb by all who are in heaven, remember those three things, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the same three things of which were found no one worthy, same level, those three levels, those are all worshiping this lamb and then they are then led to further worship themselves the elders so these three iterations but we read some of that in verse 8 the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals then you have the whole heavenly host and the saints joining in In verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So it is very clear that they are worshipping. We know instinctively when we read this kind, we don't have to analyze it too much. When you read this sort of description, you know that they're worshipping, The question is, what was this worship? And later on, what caused it? But first, what was it? It consists, A, in falling down. They fall down in worship. That's a characteristic of worship and is true of of real worship as well as false worship. The idol worshipers know how to do that in Isaiah 44. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. That's the instructions given in Daniel when he makes this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. The instructions are, when you hear the music, fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship, shall be cast into the fiery furnace. So it's understood that these two things, falling down and worship, go together. That's even Satan's blasphemous, treacherous instructions. To Jesus, that were not followed in Matthew 4 9 and the temptations of Christ. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The two things go together. Now, that's true then in all these instances of false worship. It's true uh, all the more with right and true. Worship, as we see in other places in revelation, previously in chapter four, the twenty four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever ever and ever, and then later on in revelation nineteen four and the twenty four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, not just exclusive to heavenly worship that 's what the magi do when they come to see the birth of, or the, the young child. With Mary's mother, they fall down and they worship Him. And that's what you do. When you're in the immediate presence of God, you fall down and you worship Him. Now, of course, the disciples were always with the Incarnate God. And I suppose the thought occurs to me that probably familiarity to some extent bred contempt in sinners such as ourselves. It doesn't do that in heaven, you know, because sinless, they never get tired of falling down in worship. They just keep on doing it forever and ever because they're sinless. But we as sinners, our vision is very cloudy, our heart are, are very hard, and our sort of understanding and feeling of worship comes and goes. But we know that in the occasions where the curtain is pulled back and the glory of Christ is seen, what happens? Even just a little bit. Like in Luke 5.8. In the miraculous catch of fish. Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Do you see how those things go together? Even in all of his pride and all of his sin. And his inability to understand. Just for a moment. The curtain is pulled back. And he can see, I'm a sinner. And I'm in the presence of a holy God. And he does what comes natural, and he falls down, and he worships Christ. Those things go together. see, also the case, and the only explicit instance we have of someone coming to faith through witnessing the worship of the church. And that's in 1 Corinthians 14.25. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, you will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And so, of course, we have in our own verse, in verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Now the point of all this is not to change what we do and to do as the Muslims do, who physically put their bodies on the ground, that, that's not what I'm meaning to say. What I'm meaning to say is that we are an abject poverty in ourselves when we come to worship. Because we are cognizant of those twin facts of the one whom we're worshiping immense worthiness and greatness and magnitude. And of our own lowliness and worthlessness. And if you do not have those two things, you will not in your heart fall down to worship Jesus Christ. You will be going through the motions. Now, B, by the way, in just a brief point, in this subpoint: casting crowns. That's what they do. They cast down their crowns. We spoke before that these crowns, they were given the crown of life, and there's this physical representation given as well, the golden crowns and maybe probably has something to do with the fact that they're given sovereignty. They're made to be kings and priests, but they cast down their crowns because you can't possibly have that on you as you're actually worshiping. Now, it doesn't mean that they're cast forever because I guess they keep getting them back up so they can cast them again. And just like it is, that God actually gives wonderful gifts to his people. And he's made us to be kings and priests, and that reality doesn't go away. But for the moment and the, the worship in its fullness, we can't be conscious of that. We can't, as it were, be wearing that which we've been given. If we are thinking about how wonderfully perfect we've been made, or uh, the reality is, we relatively speaking, compared to what we were, it's the reality of sanctification. You can't deny that if you're a Christian, the Lord has made you better than you once were. But that isn't the thing you're wearing at the moment of worship. You're laying that aside. You're not considering that. You're considering how unworthy you yet remain. And again, you've got angels in in heaven who know how to do this, who have never sinned once in their life. There's never been a moment in which they haven't loved the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they themselves are bowing down, recognizing their unworthiness. Well, how much more so us? And casting down your crown is part of that. Well, that's the worship. I think that's the heart of the worship. But then the actions further than falling down physically that go along with this heart of worship would be singing. Let's see. Verse 8, each having a harp. And in verse 9, they sang a new song. And then in verse 11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The reality then that they are singing in heaven. Beautiful thing of course the reality that God has made human beings to be able to sing. Not every creature on earth is able to sing. Those of you who have been reading the book are reminded of the the wonders of of both the human voice and also birdsong and how God has made these things to glorify him well they are singing there's a musical accompaniment which is itself an amazing thought because even in heaven with these resurrection bodies and thus these perfected voices musical instruments can still aid their worship now uh, there's the stereotype of going to heaven and everyone is issued a harp as they go through but notice that it's the elders actually who have a harp, each one it's not each of the heavenly congregation that's particularly pointed to here. Now, in one sense, those 24 elders represent all the redeemed. We have all been made kings and priests. But in the sense here, they seem to be, as it were, leading this heavenly worship, leading their brethren in worship. And we can be very sure that's what the elders are supposed to do here on earth, to lead their brethren in worship. And there's this aspect, then, of having this musical Accompaniment to to help them to do that. And it's with a loud voice, this singing in heaven. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now, why would it be a loud voice? Well, we use a loud voice, I think, uh, on two occasions. We use it to be heard, and second, we use a loud voice when we're excited about something. We're enthused about something. And so on both of these counts, it is entirely appropriate for them to use a loud voice because they want it to be heard. This is something that needs to be proclaimed. It's something that actually every last one of them in heaven already know. They're not learning anything new. But it is something that demands a loud voice to declare. It's like when Christ came in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the disciples are saying Hosanna to the son of David and the rest of it and the Pharisees say tell them to be quiet and he says I tell you the truth if I told them to be quiet the stones would cry out the stones would use a loud voice because this is something that demands to be said it needs to be heard it needs to be heard as far and as wide as possible and therefore you use a loud voice to do it But the other aspect of it is that they're excited about this. There are some things that you're just taken with. And you have to say it in a loud way. You couldn't possibly whisper it. You couldn't contain yourself. And that is the other aspect in which it is right for them to say this, to sing this song with a loud voice in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb. How can you not say that in an excited way? Now, again, I'm not saying that our worship always needs to be loud. There are some churches where it is a monotonous, uh, very loud sort of shouting scene that's going on. And that's not what I mean because some of the songs we sing are more contemplative, more mournful. And when we're talking about the reality of our own sin, that's not something to be shouted in an excited voice. And some other things along those lines, the reality of suffering that is our lot in this world and persecution and the rest of it. But this thing, talking about our Savior who died for our sins and his great worthiness, that is something to be sung in a loud voice. So there's C singing and D there is prayer. And golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. We know that incense was part of the Old Testament temple worship it's something that may not be self-explanatory. Well, none of it, actually. I don't know any part of the ceremony law that was utterly self-explanatory. It had to be explained in time in the Gospel. But the meaning of this fragrance smoke, which, if anything, you can think of this, there's these, these dirty sinners. They are trying to worship God. And they have this incense. And it covers them a little bit. And it obscures them just a little bit so you can't see how uh, all of them in their wretchedness just a little bit. And they smell badly. And this incense, this sweet smelling smoke sort of covers that and it rises up to heaven and so that when the Lord beholds this group of people he's not looking at a bunch of smelly, ugly sinners but this incense as it were covers them and makes them to be better. Well, that physical sense is explained further here that it's the prayers of the saints. Explained even more fully in chapter 8 of this book of Revelation. Chapter 8, verse 3, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. You see, so there's prayer. as we pray among other things for one another. The prayers of the saints, very much part of our worship. You see, as we proclaim these truths, we also then pray these truths to the living God as part of our worship. You see, that's part of the heart of prayer, if you're, or the heart of worship. If you, you fall down in your heart before God, and you declare these things. You're also falling down, and you want to pray to this God. And you pray the reality of how great he is. And you pray for the ability to understand these things. And you pray that these things might be further known than what they are. And you pray that further worshipers might be added. That's what the Lord is seeking, isn't He? Worshippers. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's part then of our motivation. Yes, of course, we pray on the sake, for the sake of our friends and family and all the rest of the people out there who are in the depths of, or the, the, the verge of the abyss of hell. And we say how terrible for them. And we want to save them. And that's right. But you know on the other sense. It's that there aren't enough worshippers in this place. Look at us. 50 some people. Is that enough for Jesus Christ? No. It isn't enough. And we say we want more worshippers. Bring them. Lord give us more worshippers. Recruit them and bring them into this place. That they might also declare. The praises of the living God. And of this. Son of God who is worthy to be praised. So prayer is very much part of this heavenly worship. You know, the the funny thing is, when people speak of churches today and they say, how's the worship there? I don't know if I've ever heard that question being asked and the sense of it, what it meant was, how is the prayer? That's a misunderstanding of worship very much I think for good or for ill and I don't know how this reflects on our church I honestly don't but the temperature the reality of that worship is known in their prayer and if the prayer is cold and ignorant and uh, entirely uh, beset with sort of minor and superficial things then sadly the worship of that church Is not very good. Well, what it says in Isaiah 56 is, even then I will bring them to my holy mountain, and there I make them joyful in my house of prayer. You see, the thing is, when the Lord is, is speaking of what goes on in the temple and later on in the heavenly temple, what goes on, what the people do, the people of God do as they gather for worship, he says it's a house of prayer. And when the Lord summarizes what the temple is for when he cleanses it, he says in Matthew 21, it's a house of prayer. That's what it is. He's getting rid of all this uncleanness, all this vulgarity, and all of this blasphemy, all these things in which his house is being used for things that should not be used for, and he says this is supposed to be a house of prayer. So as we consider what worshiping God is, we must not forget that it is for prayer. That's why when the apostolic, the church's uh, worship is summarized in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's what we do as a worshiping people. So that's the worship itself then. It's as falling down and casting crowns. And it's singing. In a loud voice. And it's praying. Well secondly then what's the occasion for this worship? We see what worship is. But what's the occasion? We read in verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll. And we'll go on of course from there to say what happens. but And why it happens. But the occasion it would seem would be this taking up of the scroll. Now, we saw last time that the scroll seems to be something like the transcript of the divine mind. It's all the events of providence and all the events of redemption that the Lord has in mind and has planned. And anything that the Lord plans, of course, is going to be. But it requires that actual enacting. And in particular, the work of redemption requires a savior, a qualified savior, who is actually able to take upon himself the sins of all of God's people and to pay for them. And the only one, of course, who is qualified for that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's therefore qualified to open these seals and to read the scroll, and and that means to make all these things happen. But the scene here speaks as if there was some point in which all this was given into Christ's hands, all this power and authority. And that's a little bit hard for us to understand because in one sense we know that the Son of God has always exercised all authority. Before his resurrection and ascension, in John 3.35, it says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And previously know, in the prologue of John, all things were made through him. And so it's not something new that he has power and authority. Or in Hebrews 1, 2, He has in this last day spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, the creator, and being the brightness of his power and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So both in creation and in providence, he is all this power has already been given to him so in one sense it's always been that way but in another sense things do change and the question is when it would seem to be after the ascension of the Lord Jesus As, you know that's where and when it's said that he comes to the right hand of God the Father in Mark sixteen nineteen, he was received up in the heaven and is sat down at the right hand of God or acts two thirty two then Jesus Christ was raised this Jesus Christ has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and you know that's what the martyr Stephen saw he lifted up his eyes as he was dying for the sake of his testimony. He said, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and that's by the way, then, this fullness, this increased fullness of his power and of authority, or at least his public recognition of the, these things in First Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So, yes, it's absolutely the case that the Son of God has always had power and authority over all things, but there's a new sense. And after this completion of the work of redemption, after he has actually paid the price, he has taken on human flesh, he has lived a sinless life in this world, and he has paid this price. He's suffered and he's died, and on the third day he rose again, and now he this increased public recognition. And of course it is something new, isn't it? Heaven has not had an incarnate Savior there before. He is being received into heaven. And he still has this flesh, this body of which he died, of course, being a resurrected and glorified body. But he still has the scars. And now he there's someone actually to sit down physically at that right hand. And he's enthroned in that way. And so I think the occasion here, the specific thing that initiates this, this forever cycle of this new kind of prayer. And we, we, we see that it's a new song. We'll speak about that a little bit more. But this new song, the newness of the worship, is based on this ascended, this risen and ascended Christ being exalted. You know, the shorter catechism speaks of the exaltation of Christ. Question, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? And the answer is Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Well, sounds a bit like Revelation, doesn't it? It sounds like Revelation is preoccupied with aspects of the exaltation of Christ, in his sitting at the right hand of the Father, in being worshipped by the heavenly host, and also of his coming judgment, all of which are aspects of of Christ's exaltation. So that was the occasion then for this prayer. When he takes the scroll anew in this, this way, having already demonstrated to the world that he is able to be this Savior, this God-man, though he always had this power, but of this new occasion for worship. Now we know that from Luke seven fifteen seven that there's celebration in heaven when one sinner repents, Right? There's joy in heaven over that. There's a celebration. Well, the question is, would there not be a celebration for the exaltation of the risen Christ? Don't you think? That there'd be some sort of celebration, some sort of worship? Well, of course we know that there was. And that was the occasion then for this particular worship. Perhaps along the lines of Psalm 24-7. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And be lifted up you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. As heaven receives this exalted Lord Jesus Christ. The lamb who was slain. But rose again and lives forevermore. So that's the occasion perhaps thirdly and finally there's the explanation the rationale for all this worship because they don't just say this thing as an empty thing worthy is the lamb they explain it they say here's our rationale for it in verse 9 you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals why? for you were slain and have, received, or have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation worthy is the lamb we have seen this already in chapter 4 Twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord. And then in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now, we, of course, are going to get to the fuller explanation of how it is specifically that he's worthy. But this content now the worship is as we've already said, and we ought to say again, is that He is worship, uh, worthy of worship. Now He's worthy specifically because He was slain, speaking of the death of Christ. And it's an um, interesting thing, isn't it, that even we, in all of our, our stygian darkness, as fallen sinners on this earth, we even know enough that we ought to worthy to honor those who have laid down their lives for us. So you go to virtually any city, town, village, in this nation, and you'll see these war memorials, the First and Second World War, those who, laid down, who gave their lives, who shed their blood for us, in order that we might live freely, in order that we might live in liberty in this nation, they laid down their lives and we honor them. We're not going to forget them. And yearly we have Remembrance Day to remember them. Well, now these men were in relative degrees worthy. They were all sinners, of course. Some of them died in a manner that was more fitting and courageous than others. Those details aren't preserved for us always. But we yet honor them because they were slain for our behalf far, far more so than Jesus Christ. It's one thing that when fellow human sinners like ourselves dies, quite another thing when our Creator dies for us. It's quite another when a sinless one, in fact, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? It's the wonder of the atonement that He even could die. So a wonder that He had a human flesh to die in the first place, the incarnation he was given this human body through the power of the Holy Spirit, then furthermore, it's an amazing thing that he could die because he wasn't a sinner. Death doesn't happen without sin. It's impossible. Then you have to say, well, he himself wasn't a sinner, but rather our sin was laid upon him. And then when that happens, you say, well, the amazing thing is that he ever got up. The amazing thing is that he's not still in that tomb. I know my own sin. Maybe you know yours. And it's a lot and then you multiply that by the how many were it was 10,000 times 10,000 wasn't it that's a lot of people in heaven a lot of the redeemed and they had a lot of sins and all all of those sins were laid on him and you wonder how he ever got up and then you recognize in the greatness of that savior the one who was slain but is no longer he had been slain but he did get up on the third day And we recognize his worthiness. It's explained in Romans 5 6. For when we are yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he was slain, and you have redeemed us it says now redeeming speaking here is a sort of financial transaction you've paid for us it implies that there is some debt that needed paying. and once again the question is is it a large debt or a small debt so I forget who it was who made a, a significant passage in one of their books was, was talking about this and it's a good thing to consider because again, if you're, not worthy, if you're not conscious of the size of the debt, then you're not really going to worship the one who paid it. Is it that you paid some postage due that was 50 pence? Or was it more than that? Well, I think the Lord points to the magnitude of the debt in Matthew eighteen twenty-three. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I don't know exactly how much 10,000 talents is in our money, but it's certainly in the millions. It is beyond anyone's ability to pay. It is vastly beyond, and what's being pictured is a sort of workman who, who would... Uh, earn a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that in a year's time and beyond their ability to pay because that's the settling up of the account. I need you to pay up. You owe me this 10,000 talent debt. Talent being an amount of silver, right? And he's not able to. It says in verse 25 he was not able to pay. And you need to come to the recognition that you're not able to pay. It is not a mere convenience that Christ died on the cross and is paid. Say, oh good, well I won't have to go to the trouble then. It is that you could not have paid that debt. It was beyond your ability. He has redeemed us from a debt that was beyond our ability to pay with something that was very precious to him. His own precious blood. Worthy as a lamb, because he has been slain, and you have redeemed us. And furthermore, you have made us to be kings and priests. Now, you don't—it's hard to say what's the most unfathomable aspect of this: the fact that Christ was slain, the fact that he's redeemed us, or the fact that he's now made us to be kings and priests. That is part of the the specific emphasis of revelation. That's part of, as we go through the canon of scripture, every, at every stage, a little bit more is added to it. And something that isn't entirely new, but the emphasis of it seems to be new in revelation is just how much we share in the riches and glory of Christ. In that we ourselves are being made, these kings and priests, and that we reign with him. And truly, one wonders if you could possibly have taken it in in times past whether the Old Testament believers could possibly believe that such a thing was, were to be the case or even those who walked on this earth with Christ if they really understood what it meant you know that James and John their mother asked you know we'd like him, this one to sit at your right and the other one at the left and she didn't know what she was asking and they didn't know what they were wanting they had no idea but now we understand we understand this amazing thing that he's made us to be kings and priests and for all of these reasons you see that's the explanation all these doctrines and we could go on and on and on with the doctrines involved in here and the, the atonement the penal substitutionary atonement and the whole idea of the covenant of redemption and how our redemption has been accomplished and applied as John Murray says some of you read that book it wasn't an easy book was it? Well, there's a lot of material. He could have gone on beyond that. This relatively compact book. And then furthermore of granting to us this great privilege of making us kings and priests. That's why he's worthy. That's why they worship him when they consider the greatness of these things. So the application. So very simple. The first is simply to receive this worthy one. You see, you need to believe in Jesus Christ to worship him. If the occasion for this worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, in order to celebrate it, then you need to recognize it. You need to believe who Christ is, what he did, what he is doing, and what he yet shall do. You need to believe those things yourself. It's impossible, impossible to worship God without faith. We need to receive this worthy one, and then if we have received this worthy one, if we have put our faith in Him, if we if we become one of those redeemed through faith in Christ, then we're going to sing a new song. And here we look at that aspect we didn't see so much in the sermon—the reality that they were singing this new song. Now, this verse and ones like it that say "sing a new song" or "they sang a new song." and there are several instances of that in scripture, It's sometimes taken to be a requirement to be constantly inventing new songs to sing, as in, um, you know, why why do we have to sing these songs that have only been invented over the last two or three years? And the answer is, well, the Lord has told us, sing a new song, as if psalms and hymns had a sort of sell-by date, and you have to keep them fresh by making a new one. Well, first of all, we have to understand that it couldn't be the meaning here, because as we've been going through the heavenly worship, we know that, there, among other things, we're saying "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty," and we can be absolutely certain that that's been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries, because we know that was the case when Isaiah came and saw the heavenly throne room. Now we can be quite sure that if you were to go there today, you would hear the very same song. It wasn't discarded, you know. It wasn't a sense of uh, and, and further we're not going to get to heaven and, and say to the inhabitants that have gone before us to glory and say you know, oh I'm so glad to be among you I've, for all my life I've been wanting to join in that song of worthy is the lamb great ambition of my life to be able to sing that together with you and, he, and they say we stopped singing that centuries ago we've got new songs to sing that that got old after a few years. In fact, we stopped singing it in 200 AD. Actually, and we've moved on to other things. Do you really think so? No, I don't think that that's the meaning. What then? What makes it a new song? What are we talking about when we talk about a new song? Well, first of all, the Greek word for <coughs> song is ode. They're singing a new ode, and you might know from sort of classical antiquity ideas, there's an ode, and in order there to be an ode to a hero, there must be exploits to talk about in that ode. You make an ode based on someone's exploits. And the newness, therefore, of this song has to do with the newness of those exploits. Because Christ accomplished his death and resurrection and ascension. And therefore, we make this new song to celebrate those things that he's done. That's, by the way, now I do think it's very much a authorization for the church to be singing both this and this, both psalms and hymns. Why? Because these psalms, as much as they contain uh, the the looking forward to Christ, they do contain Christ in shadows and in types. And, images and the rest of it, does not contain Christ in his fullness. You won't find here, specifically of Jesus Christ with that name, laying down his life on the cross for our sins, and rising again the third day. You'll find it sort of portrayed in, in types and shadows and images. But it is for the church and to make these songs that reflect that which he, he did. Now they don't have a sell-by date. The point is, That you make it in in, in these songs. You sing about what Christ has done. In reflection of his his ascension. His resurrection and ascension. So that's what prompts the new song. And that's what we ought to be doing then. We sing the new song as the redeemed. If we have put our faith in Christ. Then we make that song our own. Now. As I'm saying, it's not just the new information. It's also the new person needed to sing it. Because this song is exclusively available for the redeemed. No one else can sing it. In fact, what Revelation 14.3 says is no one else can learn it. It says they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. funny how, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. And we'll see that they actually, that's actually a picture of all of the redeemed. No one can learn it. Why? Because it can only be sung by the redeemed. By those who believe these things to be true. And ladies and gentlemen, if you believe these things to be true, that Jesus Christ Died for your sins in order to redeem you and rose again the third day and has ascended into the right hand of... If you believe all those things, then you are saved. You have been redeemed. That is your song. And if you don't believe them, you're not going to sing them. Only the redeemed can sing this song. And only they, because they're regenerate, they've been given a new heart to receive these things by the Holy Spirit to believe them and to rejoice in them and therefore to sing. That's why the Lord was saying the Lord is looking for those to worship God in spirit and in truth. Not everyone can do that. Only the redeemed can possibly do that. Well, that's incidentally one reason why I don't think it's a good idea that some churches knowingly employ non-Christians to be musicians in their worship service. You see, unbelievers come, and rightly so, but they come to hear the gospel. They cannot come to worship God. That doesn't mean we, we say prohibition against them singing. The thing is that they lack every prerequisite to actually worship God. They're not worshiping God. Because without faith, we know it's impossible to please God. Because without a regenerate heart, we know that it's impossible for us to understand what it is that we're singing. And we certainly don't have, then, the heart that goes along with that intelligent worship. Well then, if indeed you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you must do that, if that's the case, then we sing this new song, because he is worthy.